0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. I am very, very excited today to be able to introduce our first speaker for the quarter. His name is Professor Bill Perry. How many of you have had a chance to take a class with Professor Perry at some point in your Stanford careers? We have a few who are lucky enough to do that, and the rest of you are in for a big treat. Um, My mom was so excited that I was going to be able to introduce uh, Professor Perry today, because in addition to being a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute and having joint appointments in the Engineering School and the International uh, Relations Institute here at Stanford, he um, had the honor to serve with great dignity in the role of Secretary of Defense for the uh, United States. And mom was married to a career naval aviator, and her son, the other son, the good son, became a career (laughs) naval officer. And I just ran away and joined the Marines and then went into civilian life. But what we would say is, in the cosmic household, this is the coolest speaker that we've ever had at ETL. So mom says, thank you, uh, Professor Perry. Let's welcome Bill not back to Stanford, because he's here all the time when he's not uh, serving his country with
1: distinction. Welcome to ETL, Bill. As you can see from the chart, the title of my talk today is, It's Your Ship. And I will first of all explain what that strange title means. When I was the Secretary of Defense, Mike Abershoff did a spectacular job for me as my military assistant. He then went on to command an Aegis-class destroyer. When he was captain of that ship, it won awards twice as the best ship in the Pacific Fleet. This success resulted from a very unmilitary style of leadership that Mike had. When a sailor assigned to do a job on the ship would approach Mike to ask him which of several alternatives he thought would be best, Mike always answered, It's your ship. If you think of it that way, it's your ship, you'll make the right answer. After his command, Mike left the Navy to write a book and to pursue a career with innovative companies. First, he wrote his book, and entitled the book, It's Your Ship. And there's the book, and there's Mike. (laughs) The book caused quite a stir in industry, and Mike was frequently cited as a model for leadership. As a result, he was very profitably distracted from his new career by a blizzard of offers to give leadership lectures. He is still, years later, still giving those leadership lectures but is now beginning to get back to his idea of working with startup companies and is presently the CEO of a very interesting startup company called NeoKinetics. I can tell you more about his company in the Q&A, but for now I want to get back to his book. In that book, he wrote that his ideas for leadership had been inspired by my example. I was, of course, flattered, but it did cause me to wonder what he was referring to. So I began to look back on my own career. I'm going, today, I'm going to share with you a f- few vin- vignettes from my career that I believe make Mike's points about leadership. Way back in the 1960s, I was the director of a local high-tech company in the defense electronics industry. The company was a part of GT&E, General Telephone and Electronics, but I based my model of management not on gt e which I thought was a stodgy, old, eastern giant, but on HP, Hewlett-Packard, which was a relatively small, highly, you don't know, you'll have trouble thinking of HP as being relatively small, but in the 1960s, it was relatively small. And it was a highly innovative company located right next door in Palo Alto. The HP principles, as I understood them, were innovate, manage by walking around and treat employees as stakeholders. Today, HP is perhaps the greatest high-tech company in the world, but in those days, it was struggling to get a toehold, in an electronics industry dominated by large traditional companies based on the East Coast. I tried to apply the HP principles to my company and had very good results in the three years I was a director, going from 600 employees to 1,200 employees, while tripling the profits but I could only go so far operating under the restrictions of GT&E. In particular, I had no way of allowing the employees to share in the profits of the company. So I decided to leave GT&E and found my own company. Now, that's commonplace in the Valley today, but it was almost unheard of in 1964. And I can assure you, my parents and most of my friends thought I'd gone mad to leave a good, sound job at a nice company like gt and take a chance to start my own company. The new company, which I called ESL, was to be in the defense electronic business, as was the company I was leaving. But I planned to focus ESL on the newly emerging digital technology, in contrast to gt which is a leader in analog technology. In fact, gt e suffered from what I call a liability of leadership, liability of leadership. That is, because of its leadership in analog technology, it was not able to take advantage of the new digital technology in a timely way. Indeed, gt through their Sylvania subsidiary, was one of the world's largest manufacturers of vacuum tubes. Many of you don't even know what a vacuum tube is, but in 1964, it was a big thing. And they saw the revolution underway in integrated circuits and digital circuits not as an opportunity, but as a threat to their very profitable business and vacuum tubes. I planned to continue to manage by the HP principle of management by walking around, MBWA, managed by walking around, which I had found to be very successful. And I planned to seize the opportunity presented by a new company to make all of the employees stakeholders in the company, telling them in the most direct way possible it's your ship. So I rejected offers of venture capital funding or even angel funding. ESL would be a full associate's company with all of the funding supplied by the stock bought by employees. All employees, when they started work, had a three-month window in which they could buy a specified amount of ESL stock. Nearly all of them did so, using their savings or cashing in their pension funds for the average investment of about $5,000, which in 1964 was a lot of money. They were stakeholders in every sense of the word. By this means, we raised a half a million dollars capital the first year we were in business. This reminds me of what that first year in business was like. By the end of the first year, ESL was profitable, and from then on, we reinvested all of the profits to sustain the growth of the company, which ran about 40% a year for the first 10 years. 13 years after I started ESL, I was asked to go into the government as the Director of Defense Research and Engineering. I did not want to leave the company I had founded. We were on a growth track comparable to that of HP in its first 13 years, and I wanted to keep it going. But on serious consideration, I decided the job offered me was too important and too interesting to turn down, and so I reluctantly divorced myself from the company that I had founded and headed back to Washington. Six months after I left ESL, the board accepted an offer from TRW. The early employees of ESL made about 50 times their original stock price, so they found TRW's offer hard to refuse, although it is clear that if they'd stayed independent and kept growing for another five or six years, they probably could have achieved a 1,000 times on the original investment. Today, ESL still exists, but it no longer has the special qualities that it had as an independent company. Not surprisingly, after its acquisition, many of its most innovative people left, and ESL got stuck at annual sales of a few hundred million dollars per year. It is interesting to note that a company called SAIC, which was founded a year later than ESL and modeled after it as an associate's company, continues today as an independent employee-owned company, and today it has annual revenues of $8 billion. Now, let me turn to applying these management principles to a government agency. Now I've left the ESL, I'm in the government. When I was the Director of Defense Research and Engineering, I found incredible opportunities for innovative products. At the time we were in the most intense part of the Cold War and feared that the Soviet Union was developing such a large and capable military force that our deterrence might not be effective. I was charged with developing a strategy that would allow the United States military to compete with the vaunted Red Army even though it was three times as large as us. I decided to apply to military systems the newly emerging information technology in which American commercial industry led the world. These new high-technology systems, I believed, would give our military forces a qualitative advantage that would offset the quantitative advantage of the Soviet Union military. The Secretary of Defense at that time, Harold Brown, named this, appropriately enough, the offset strategy and gave me, as his newly appointed director of defense research and engineering, the responsibility and resources to develop and apply the relevant technology as fast as reasonably could be done. So very early in my tenure, I went to an agency called ARPA, the Advanced Research Project Agency, which among other things at that same time in history was developing something called the ARPANET, which later became the internet. Well, ARPA worked for me as the Director of Defense Research and Engineering, so I went to them and said, please brief me on all the advanced sensors that that would be the basis for this offset strategy. During those briefings at ARPA, I was introduced to an audacious new research project that was exploring an entirely new way of configuring aircraft that would make the aircraft immune to attack by radar or infrared guided missiles. I saw immediately that the so-called stealth technology, if successful, would give our military an overwhelming advantage, so I told the ARPA director that he would have all the resources he needed to prove out the concept as quickly as possible. Within six months, the project team had a successful flight test of a prototype aircraft, which served as a convincing proof of principle. I then put the program in what we call deep security and brought in the Air Force to work jointly with ARPA to define, develop, and build a stealthy fighter-bomber, which we called the F-117. This is a picture of the F-117 at its test site, which is called Area 51 in Nevada. Some of you may have heard of Area 51. It's it's become famous in in internet lore as where the US government keeps aliens. (laughs) I can assure you, I've been there many times. There are no aliens there. But there are very there are very secret airplanes. We also built an innovative warship based on stealth, and this is a picture of that warship in its test run in San Francisco Bay. And if you look carefully at the back of the ship, you'll see a man standing with an orange jacket. That is your speaker, uh, who is overseeing this first test flight, first test run of the what we called the Sea Shadow. That ship uh, was a prototype ship. It was never built exactly like that, but the principles of that ship were later used in, the, so in that Aegis story, which you saw in the picture of, of uh, Captain Abershoff earlier on. Although stealth was a critically important component, the ultimate success of the offset strategy also depended on two other related components. A new family of intelligence sensors that could identify and locate in real time all enemy forces in the battle area. These systems we called smart sensors. And a new family of munitions that could strike the target so like, located with great precision. These systems we called smart weapons, of which the Tomahawk cruise missile was the most prominent. The military capability resulting from America's offset strategy was what the United States had in place when the war with Iraq broke out in 1989, the war which we called Desert Storm. The resulting military operation demonstrated that these radical new military systems had a remarkably high degree of effectiveness in actual combat. We're supposed to be getting sound, What high-tech yeah. weapons such as smart bombs could do. Guided with precision by lasers or radar, these bombs on their targets with pinpoint accuracy. This has been a goal of airmen ever since aerial warfare had begun. The effectiveness of these new systems depended not on massive firepower, which is the key to success in World War II, but on much less but dramatically more precise firepower. Well, after four years as the Director of Defense Research and Engineering, I left Washington and came back to Palo Alto. My old company (coughs) was now a subsidiary of TRW, and I had no interest in rejoining it. Instead, I joined a high-tech investment and venture capital firm named Hamburg & Quist, which at the time was located in San Francisco, and a few years later took a position at Stanford in a small department known as Economic Engineering Systems and Operations Research which is uh, the predecessor to the MS&E department, which is one of the sponsors of this course. In 1993, I was asked to come back to Washington again, first as the Deputy Secretary of Defense, and then a year later as the Secretary of Defense. The Soviet Union had broken up by then. The Cold War was over, but we were faced with new dangers. All of the newly formed republics of the Soviet Union were suffering economic Social and political upheavals of greatest concern for the countries in upheaval <laughs> had nuclear weapons. This was a prime opportunity for innovation. The security dangers I faced were very different from the dangers faced by my predecessors, so their strategies were of no use to me. I needed a very new strategy. With the Cold War over, I considered the major security danger to the United States a terror group getting a nuclear bomb and detonating it in one of our cities. But I knew that a terror group could not make a bomb from scratch. They would have to buy or steal the bomb or the fissile material from a nuclear power. So I believed that I had to take all actions available to keep that from happening. As a result, I set my highest priority as Secretary of Defense, the dismantling of thousands of nuclear weapons and bringing under strict security control the remaining weapons and fissile material. The dismantlement was already well underway in the United States, but the four nuclear powers in the former Soviet Union could ill afford the expenses involved in the safe dismantlement and the safeguarding of the weapons and the fissile material. We needed to provide help, and fortunately a tool was available to me. Two visionary senators, Senator Nunn, Senator Lugar, sensing this danger, had just passed a program which of course was called the Non-Lugar Program, which gave the Secretary of Defense the authority and the resources to deal with this problem. My first goal was the complete elimination of nuclear weapons in the new nuclear powers, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus, created by the breakup of the Soviet Union. Just to give you a feeling of how serious this problem was, Ukraine at that time, had 2,000 nuclear weapons. They had more nuclear weapons than England, France, and China combined. And they had a government and a society which, is, which was in total upheaval at the time. With, with the resources of the non-Lugar program, with the expenditure of a considerable amount of what could be called political capital, and with the cooperation of Russia, we mounted a truly extraordinary effort i 'm going to give you about a four minute video to give you some insight into how that effort was conducted uh, during the course of this effort. I visited one of the, the major sites major missile sites in Ukraine four different times to oversee first the removal of the warhead, then the removal of the missile, then the blowing up of the silo, and finally the uh, restoring the site to its uh, farm, farming condition this The video by the way, is made up of Clips together from news reels that were presented in Moscow and Kiev. What you're seeing here was not presented in the United States. You're seeing newsreels that showed in uh, Moscow and Kiev, t- trying to c- convince the Russian people that what we were doing was not a danger to them. Turn the lights off. Lights out. Out. These are archives from the so- from the old Soviet Union show of firings of, of the SS-19 missile. This is the missile that was based at Pervomaisk. Thank you. This is my first visit to Pervomaysk. They took us into an underground facility where they controlled all these nuclear weapons aimed then at the United States. And then the general took me out and showed me that the warhead had already been taken from the missile. At the second visit, they're now dismantling the missile, SS-19 missile. Now this is what you see is broadcasting to Moscow. Ma- 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 Cold War. That dark cloud is drifting away. And we should put the same energy and skills we put to learning how to make war to learn how to make peace. This is the third visit to Povomice. So we go back to that same silo you saw in the first picture. We're going to blow it up. I never imagined that I would be received by an honor guard in Kiev playing the Star-Spangled Banner. (laughs) Now we're out at the missile site. The Russian, Ukrainian, and American ministers of defense are all ready to blow up that missile. And there it goes. Now silos, as you may know, are built not to be blown up. So, we had to go back and check it to make sure we really had gotten it. So, after this little ceremony here, we walked back to see if the silo had really been destroyed. Here are the three ministers congratulating themselves because it is destroyed, as you will see in a moment. We did a number on that silo. Now, this is my fourth and last visit to Pervomysk. Now, in the meantime, the earth movers have come in and, and uh, straightened out, filled in all that silo. we aren't getting sound. Sound up? Sound up. the Russian Minister of Defense, American Minister of Defense, and the Ukrainian Minister of Defense cultivating our garden as planting sunflowers. That's where the silo was in that first picture. And now six months later the sunflowers really did grow. By the end of my tenure, we had dismantled more than 4,000 nuclear weapons in the former Soviet Union, as well as another 4,000 in the United States. We destroyed 1,000 launches in the former Soviet Union. Most importantly, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus are now entirely free of nuclear weapons. Well, it was pointed out to me many times in the Congress that most Secretary of Defenses were not hired to destroy weapons, they're, just, they're hired to build them. So eliminating weapons was an innovative task for an American Secretary of Defense. But being Secretary of Defense also gave me an opportunity to apply management by walking around. I observed that the quality of the US military hinged to a great, not only on high technology, but on the really astounding quality of our NCO force, a non-commissioned officer force. This gave the U.S. military a competitive edge over any other military in the world. And therefore, I determined I should do everything I could to maintain that quality. Uh, I decided I wanted to make a direct contact with the senior enlisted people, personal, the NCOs in the U.S. military. So I arranged for each of the senior, each service had one senior enlisted. And they met in my office, and we decided what we would do is go to military bases. Every other month, we'd go to a different base. And the senior military of the Army, say, would plan the trip to the Army base. When we got there, the commanding general would come out, shake our hands, then he would exit stage left. And the sergeant in charge of that uh, base would take over the command for the program for the whole day. While I was there, I talked only with enlisted personnel, find out what they were thinking about, what their issues were, what their problems were. That was a very insightful trip for me. This is just one of those bases I was visiting. The uh, main, one of the principal outputs of that in the discussions was that what they cared about more than anything, first of all, that I concluded there was what I called an iron logic between the quality of our military personnel and their quality of life. Because the people, for all the training we did to pay off, the personnel had to stay in and re-enlist year after year. But the reason they enlisted, they they might have enlisted in the first place for for a number of reasons, but the re-enlistment was a, a function of what the, how their families felt their quality of life was. So I had to somehow do something about the quality of life. This was the big issue which came out every, everybody I talked with. So we decided, most importantly, what we need to do is get better housing for military personnel. Now, housing is very expensive. I just did not have the resources to do that. So we came up with an innovative approach to housing, which we have plenty of land on military bases. We invited companies, construction companies, to come build on those land and then lease the houses to the soldiers at the rates which we were able to pay them. That way we avoided the huge capital cost of building. That program, by the way, which was started in 1995, is still going on today and is, is it provides tens of thousands of housing units for military personnel. Well, <clears throat> my final day in office, there was a ceremony, <clears throat> the usual, uh, a glamorous ceremony uh, saying goodbye to the Secretary of Defense, but there was a, a, a unique part of that ceremony in that the senior enlisted personnel all came forward and presented me with a medal which had never been presented before and they said to me you have made more difference in the life of the enlisted men than any other Secretary of Defense in history. That meant more to me than all the other medals that I had gotten. Well, thinking that someday you will be leading a company. I'm going to be leaving you with the advice that the Army's Sergeant Major gave me on my first day in office, the day I took my oath of office. He was speaking about leading a military operation, but the advice he gave applies equally well to leading a company's operations. Take care of your troops, he said, and they will take care of you. It sort of goes back to this is your ship. Thank you. I'm open for questions now. (laughs) Questions?
0: And I'll repeat the question. And I'll call call if nobody raises their hand. Yes, please. On Wiki, I saw you have a PhD in mathematics. Uh, I I, I (laughs) plead guilty.
1: So the question is, uh,
0: did you... Did find it useful in your career to have a PhD? So did uh, Dr. Perry find it useful in your career
1: to have a PhD in mathematics? The short answer is yes. I'll qualify that, though. I never, when I was Secretary of Defense, I never solved a problem by solving a partial differential equation, (laughs) which is the subject I wrote my thesis in. But I found many times that the analytical way of thinking and approaching problems was a huge asset to me. And moreover, the tools which are uh, developed in management science and engineering for doing analytical decision-making, even if you cannot, don't have all the numbers, cannot apply them, the logic of going through those steps are very, very critical, I think, to coming out with, if not analytical decisions, at least objective decisions about the important problems that you're confronted with. I guess one other advantage it gave me, it made it very difficult for the people who were briefing me to snow me on technical issues, which is an occupational hazard for Secretary of Defense.
0: The question has to do with innovative solutions for dealing with the security
1: issues uh, mm-hmm. facing the world today. I'll make two comments about that. Uh, first of all, when I was the Secretary of Defense, I made a special visit to Pakistan and to India, pleading with them not to, to test and test and deploy the nuclear weapons, arguing not so much that it would be bad for the world, which I thought it would be, but I thought it would be, make it more dangerous for, for themselves and more likely one of those countries itself would be confronted with a nuclear attack. Obviously, I lost that argument. I was not not able to persuade him not to do that. So Pakistan and India did go ahead with a nuclear weapon program. Uh, Now we're confronted with several other countries wanting to go nuclear, North Korea and Iran in particular. If those two countries additionally go nuclear, I think the floodgates are open and and we've lost any ability to control nuclear weapons. If that happened, the probability of they being used in our country and in other countries, I think it becomes very high. So I think it's a very bad development, and I'm still, but I'm still, in terms of the tactics, what to do about it, my tactic is still trying to hold back the proliferation and trying to get the major nuclear powers, the United States and Russia, to start decreasing the nuclear weapons that they have. Last September, we held a conference here at Stanford. It was hosted by George Shultz, who had been the Secretary of State during the Reagan administration. And the conference was held on the 20th anniversary of the so-called Reykjavik summit. You probably have not heard of the Reykjavik summit, but a little more than 20 years ago, there was a summit meeting between President Reagan and President Gorbachev of the then-Soviet Union. And at that meeting, the two presidents actually discussed completely eliminating nuclear weapons and the missiles which, which deliver them. It was the uh, only time at a major conference of that sort where this was even discussed. Now, the bad news is, is that they were not able to come to an agreement. It founded on, actually on technical details, which is, uh, I think, too bad. But in any event, they were not able to come to an agreement. And most people consider this Reykjavik summit a failure. But Schultz and I thought the ideas that were advanced at Reykjavik were fundamentally important. And therefore, we had this conference on the 20th anniversary to ask the question, can we revive the, the, the vision of Reykjavik? And the answer we came up with in that meeting was yes. We followed it up with an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal, arguing to, to do that and arguing the steps that needed to be taken in order to get there. Uh, that op-ed piece got very strong and positive response. It was signed, by the way, by myself, besides uh, Secretary Schultz, by myself, uh, Henry Kissinger, and Senator Sam Nunn, all of whom, all of whom spent much much of their career developing and promoting nuclear weapons. And now these are four people coming out and saying, this is a time to totally eliminate the nuclear weapons in the world. And it laid out a series of ten steps that had to be taken to do that. This fall, we're going to be having another conference. And the purpose of that conference is to have detailed, uh, thoughtful papers on each of those ten steps, what it takes to actually accomplish those steps, one at a time. And um, I'm, I'm expecting significant and positive results from that meeting. So the short answer to the question is, the nuclear danger is greater than ever today, and we should continue to redouble our efforts to try to find ways of eliminating nuclear weapons in Pakistan, in India, in North Korea, and in the United States and Russia.
0: Please. You were the Secretary of Defense. That's a leadership position that comes with a lot of social responsibility. In general, if someone is the leader of a company, how much do you think it is important for him to assume social responsibility? And if you think that the CEOs of the big companies like Google, HP, do assume social responsibility, how does society or management groom this quality in leaders? So to, to what extent should CEOs of companies assume some social responsibility? And if it is important, how do you develop that capability to execute that social responsibility <coughs> effectively? That's, that's
1: a very good question. My answer to that is that when I was the CEO of a company, I did consider I had a social responsibility, not just to my employees, which I felt most strongly, but to the community in which we lived. Uh, I think every CEO should take that view. But a CEO is not controlling what all happens in this company. The board and the stockholders ultimately control that. So there has to be a, a, a broader view in the, in the country than there is today of the importance of companies uh, manifesting social responsibility. Some companies uh, do it even without the mandate, and I, I applaud them, but I, I also have sympathized with the companies where the CEOs feel they don't, they don't have the authority to do that and don't. Uh, this can be manifested in a number of ways, but one of the most obvious today is in the field of environment environmental issues. And I think every company should feel responsibility <coughs> for that beyond the responsibility that he has to follow because of legal requirements.
0: i yes
1: I'd say it's not only is it your ship, it's your planet. So.
0: So the question is, are there fundamental differences in the way one leads a for-profit company and a government uh, organization?
1: You know, I have spent a a part of my life in government, leading government organizations, a part of my life in industry, running a company, a part of my life in university. And in terms of ethical responsibilities and leadership styles, I found they apply equally to all three i would go farther than that and say that I think this is one of the few countries in the world where people can move from industry to government and back again, or from university to government and back again. I think it's a very good thing because it, gives, it brings the insights and the special techniques and skills that you learned in, 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 in industry into the government, and then when you come back to the industry, it gives you a better feeling for the social responsibilities. So I I like very much this, what sometimes is called, in a contemptuous way, the revolving door. I think the the revolving door is a very positive aspect of our society. It it does require certain regulations to make sure that people do not abuse the conflicts of interest that come from that. Yes, over on the far left.
0: Great question. I'm not yeah. going to be out. May I paraphrase it? So, you talked about um, the many experiences mm-hmm. in industry, in um, other parts of government, and did those experiences uh, prepare you, if you will, for some of the challenges that you faced in uh, Bosnia and Kosovo and some of the other hotspots? Or did you have a very steep learning curve as you came into those situations? Uh,
1: during the period between being the Director for Defense Research and Engineering, which I left in 1971, and the Secretary of Defense, which I began in 19... I left in 81, from 81 to 93. During that 12-year period, uh, while I was in venture capital investment banking, so on, I was also spending about a third of my time at the Center for International Security here at Stanford. And the background I got there, I found very, very useful when I'm back as the Secretary of Defense. So not only the anal- analytical tools you get from my association with the department here, but the insight into foreign policy issues, which, which I got from the Center for National Security here, were very, very helpful to me. But given all of that, when I walked into the job of Secretary of Defense, there were a host of problems I had no idea, no background about how to deal with them. And that would be true if you, if, if you were to move for, to become the CEO of a, of a new company. You'd run into the same problem product issues, technology issues, people issues that are entirely new to you. And, and as the Secretary of Defense, I found that the, the most important thing for me, me to do, I mean, the two organs that are in your head, one of them your mouth, one of the ears, use your ears more than you use your mouth. Listen to what other people have to say. Because you were, I was surrounded with people who had a wealth of background and experience in the issue I had to deal with. Uh, I could, I had convening power. I could call a meeting and bring together all the 10 people in the country who had the most expert knowledge of Bosnia, for example, and listen to them, spend the whole day listening to them and talking with them and exchanging views with them. Uh, You could do that with technical issues as well, but what was most difficult for me was trying to get on top of the political and geopolitical and cultural issues of the different countries we were dealing with. We were dealing with Haiti, Rwanda, Bosnia, Kosovo. All of these were... Issues which I had very little knowledge or background. So the general approach is bend, use, your, use your convening power to bring in the people who have the background and experience and listen carefully to them and discuss issues with them, and that insight will help you. In terms of military skills, of course we had mm-hmm. some of the best military people in the world. Now the Secretary of Defense, by the U.S. laws and constitution, is in charge of the military. We have civilian control of the military in our country. But if you stop to think about it, my greatest rank when I was in the Army was second lieutenant. And it occurred to me that some of the generals that were working with me might know more about military issues than I did. (laughs) So again, it's a matter of having the the good sense to listen to them, to seek them out, ask their advice, ask, ask their opinions. I'm applying that to the Secretary of Defense issue, but it also would be true to you if you move into a job as the CEO of a new company. Um, you're uh, what career
0: advice would you give be us? Career advice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can give a specific. I think that question is too, too general. Uh, I don't know how to do it specifically.
0: Okay. Uh, One more here and then over there. How did the Department of Defense person notice you when you were working in ESL? Okay. So how did the DOD notice uh, Dr. Perry when he was working at ESL? You wanting to get noticed by DOD? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh,
1: About half of our contracts at the Department of Defense were with the – I mean, at at ESL were with the Defense Department. And so I I met – Uh, people at that time. But beyond that, and probably more importantly than that, uh, because of my technical background, I was called in as an advisor to the uh, Defense Department, uh, in particular to the uh, member of the Defense Science Board, which, uh, and that, I really got to know people more through my advising and consulting role than I did through my um, company role. Uh, For example, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Um, because I had a special background and expertise in the Soviet missiles. As soon as they discovered Soviet missiles being deployed in Cuba, I was called and asked to come back and work on the team that day-by-day analyzed what was happening there. So I got very close to the people in the military who were responsible for for working on those problems. Uh, One of the people I was particular I was a consultant to was Harold Brown who was, at that time, the Director of Defense Research and Engineering. And then, in 1976, when President Carter was elected, he picked Harold Brown to be his Secretary of Defense. Harold Brown knew me from the days I was advising and consulting him. He called me up and asked me to come back and be Director of Defense, the job he used to have, which was research and engineering. So, really, my contact with that was more through my consulting work than it was through my company work, advising in the job of Director of Defense Research and Engineering, I got to know all of the people who later on asked me to become the Secretary of Defense. When I came back to Stanford after being Secretary of Defense, the math department asked me if I would come and speak at their graduation ceremony. And I said, well, fine, what do you want me to talk about? He said, explain how it is you go from a PhD in, PhD in mathematics to Secretary of Defense. <laughs> and I said, the one-sentence answer to that question is I got there by a random walk process. <laughs> <laughs> and it sort of get back, also the question you were asking, it's hard to give career advice because the career I ended up with is one I had never planned. I started off to get a PhD in mathematics because I was going to be a mathematics professor. Most people who were getting a PhD in mathematics think they want to be a mathematics professor. But I got diverted along the way by a number of things. I never, never, ever intended to go into government. And I was drafted and I really hated to give up my company and go into government, but I just, it just seemed like something I had to do. Uh, during your undergraduate career at Stanford and PhD work at um, Penn State, uh, what were the main leadership roles you undertook? And did, did, did uh, those uh, experience from those uh, leadership roles, uh, do you think right now they help you later in your career? And my second question is, during which phase of your career you felt the most stressful, um, that you are working too much and you are stressed
0: out the most? Okay, so two, two questions. The first is, did you have any leadership roles either as an undergraduate or master's student here at Stanford or during your PhD program at Penn State? And if so, how did those leadership experiences as a student prepare you for your future? And the second one, which actually all of us are wondering about, is what was the most stressful period during your career? Right, just mm. um,
1: the answer to the first question is no, except I was a teaching assistant. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, not only that, but at Stanford in those days, I was able to actually teach classes. Mm. So I actually taught classes when I was still uh, working on my uh, master's degree at Stanford. And I did also when I was working on my PhD. So I wasn't just a teaching assistant. I actually had was a lecturer. I had classes. And there's a certain amount of leadership in, involved in, 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 in teaching. It's not the same thing, but it's, it's a useful discipline there. Second question, and the most stressful, uh, um, uh, I think I should first of all say that in both of these government jobs I had, the Director of Defense Research and Engineering and the Secretary of Defense, uh, I found them enormously fulfilling. I enjoyed what I was doing all the time. They were all sort of 24-7 jobs, but all the time I was doing things I felt was important and worthwhile and interesting, so it was not tiring or stressful from that point of view. There were a few stressful situations which sort of came with the job. every week I would sign deployment orders. The only person that can send Army, Navy, Marine, Air Force people to overseas in dangerous deployment is the Secretary of Defense. It's not done by the President. It's not done by the Chief of the Army or anybody. It's done by the Secretary of Defense. Every, every week I would sign those. And there were th- always objective theoretical reasons for sending people into dangerous missions. But I also wanted to be fully grounded as to what that meant on a human basis, besides an objective basis. So the discipline I had, gave myself was that every time something would go amiss and there would be a casket coming back to uh, Andrews Air Force Base, I would go out to meet that and talk with the family and explain to them why their son or daughter had been put in this dangerous mission. Now it not only helped the family some to do that, But it helped me, because it kept me grounded on the fact that whatever the objective reasons for sending people overseas, there's a very real human element there as well. Uh, The single most stressful incident I ever had, though, was when one of our airplanes accidentally shot down one of our helicopters. About 20 people in it, they were all killed. And I had, first of all, the task of going over and telling the President that had happened. It was a lot, as if I kicked him in the stomach when I told him that. And then, to go and meet with the families and explain to them not just why their son or daughter had died, but why it died as a result of an American pilot shooting it down. I think of all of the the phrase that you hear friendly fire doesn't really capture the emotion and the drama of how really upsetting it is when we we kill one of our own people accidentally of course but nevertheless it happened there's always a very detailed investigation as to what happened and the investigation always turns out the same way as other accidents happen which is the system is always designed so that there are four or five safeguards so it won't happen. And so when something really bad like that happens, it means all four or five of them have simultaneously failed. You can figure out the probability of that happened if you know the probability of each one of the events, and so it doesn't happen very often. You get compound probability events, but they do happen occasionally. And then after the accident investigation determines that fact, then you need to determine what can you do to raise the prob- to lower the probability even more than, than it is already? How can, how can you change your process procedures so that a human error here or an equipment failure there will not be the weak link in the chain? You're very patient. <laughs> um, to what
0: extent do you think uh, cross-cultural understanding between individuals can, can make a difference? So to what extent can cross-cultural understanding between individuals make a difference? <laughs>
1: Uh, I found that very, very important. Uh, during the p- time in my in the job as Secretary of Defense, I was I went to uh, visited 67 countries. I met with the ministers of defense, the prime ministers, the kings, whoever they were in that in that country. I met with all of them in 67 different countries, and each of them came to visit me in Washington at least once. So I had many, many. Uh, Discussions with the Russian Defense Minister, whom you saw in that picture, that I probably met with him a dozen times when I was Secretary of Defense. Now, I speak no Russian, and he speaks no English. So that complicates the understanding right away. I had many meetings with the Chinese Minister of Defense, and again, I speak do not speak Chinese; he does not speak English. Uh, the first mechanical part of the problem is solved for us because we were Ministers of Defense, that we can you can you can afford and get the world's best translated interpreters. So I would be speaking with the Russian Minister of Defense, I would say something to him, and he would answer me right back, because he had somebody be standing beside him, whispering in his ear, in real time, what I was saying, and similarly with me. There were only a few interpreters who were that good. But when you get interpreters that good, you lose the illusion, you have the illusion, actually, that you're actually speaking directly with the person. So that's one barrier removed. The, the, the cultural understanding, though, is much more difficult to come by. And every time before I'd visit a country that was new to me, or that was particularly important to me, I would call in the first half day all of the government people who were experts in that subject, the, the Central Intelligence Agency, the State Department people, all of the Chinese experts, to get their detailed briefings on what I should – they thought I should know about this. And then that afternoon, I would, and evening, I would call in all the c- civilian university specialists in that field, and listen to them. Uh, so, from them, you, be, from the experts, you begin to get a feeling for what are the important cultural issues. Some of them are kind of trivial, like the, the things they say you should not do because this country's spatial customs. Uh, Some of those are important. They're not as important, I think, as people think, because people don't expect an American Secretary of Defense to know every detail custom of their country. But there are a few that are important, and and you really ought to get those down. So cultural understanding is important. It just takes a lot of time. And since you're trying to do it for 67 countries, you don't have that much time. And so you try to distill it by getting experts in those fields to come and speak with you and talk to you, and then transfer some of their wisdom and experience gained from decades of study on this subject to you and maybe a two or three hour discussion
0: in the back yes I think you asked what is the biggest challenge that he encountered and how did he solve it
1: I think there were two quite different challenges. I can't do it down to one. One of them, I I tried to describe to you in the video I showed you, and the the one biggest challenge was getting, trying to get the nuclear danger under control. Those thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons that are the deadly legacy of the Cold War are now a danger to us in a different way. And trying to get that under control was, was certainly one of the biggest challenges I had. And I spent a lot of my time and energies on that. The other was, how do you achieve policy goals of the United States without going to war? How do you use the incredible military capability of the United States without having to use it? How do you get the benefit of the, of the military capability of the United States without having to actually going to war or going to military actions? Uh, This means you have to work very closely with the people in the country charged with the diplomacy. Because between speaking nicely to a country and going to war with the country, there's an intermediate ground. It's called coercive diplomacy. Where you speak with a velvet velvet glove in one hand and an iron fist in the other hand, saying this is what we'd like to do with you and this is what we will do for you if you can accommodate us, and this is what happens if you don't. And a very simple example of that was with North Korea. Uh, I went to Pyongyang a number of years ago. I was by now out of office as Secretary of Defense, but have been asked to come back and deal with it and the nuclear problem in North Korea. And I went to North Korea, and it wasn't just Coercing them about the nuclear weapons they have it was presenting to them The positive ways that the good things that could happen to them if they were willing to give up the nuclear weapons The economic benefits the trade with South Korea the trade with Japan the economic assistance the United States could give them The uh, representation the United States would give them all of these things were posed to them in a positive way, so it, It always seemed to me that good diplomacy is a mixture of the positive and the negative. And when you only focus on the negative, which is what the military can do, you miss the main benefit of it. So the trick is somehow blending the two of those together, which means bureaucratically doing something which is very difficult getting the state department and the defense department to work together. But it really needs to be done. Thank you.
0: One one last question, sir.
1: From a business point of view, there's always the question about how do you manage a huge federal bureaucracy, and there's been an evolutionary change, I understand, over the last 30 years of outsourcing non-combative functions in the military, and my question is, uh, how much did you have to do with that change, and uh, is it a good thing?
0: So how much did uh, Dr. Perry have to do with the outsourcing of non-combat functions from the military to civilian contractors, and was it a was, has it been a good thing?
1: I have a, I think it's a mixed bag. I don't have, do not have a simple yes or no answer to that question. Uh, I worked very hard to get the government out of the business, uh, for example, of building integrated circuits, which we were very much in when I became the secretary. We weren't very good at doing it, and they were very expensive. Uh, I worked very hard to get the government to use civilian products and civilian contractors whenever it was indeed feasible. I didn't know any way that I could, as Secretary of Defense, make a case-by-case judgment of that. So the first day I was in office as Secretary of Defense I wrote a directive. And it dealt with the fact that up until then these decisions were made by a government program manager. The government program manager, however, had certain restrictions. Obviously, he had legal restrictions, but he also had restrictions that said, whenever, if you want to use a commercial product or a commercial service, you have to get a waiver to do that. You had to go through a formal process going up the line to do that. It turns out that's a very complex and time-consuming process to get that waiver, so not many people did it. So I my director simply changed the regulations slightly it said if you want to use a military developed product you have to get a waiver to do it <laughs> so that the presumption was that the program manager whenever it was feasible would use commercial products which were generally much cheaper and Most of the program managers were happy to take advantage of that new freedom, and we saved a lot of money. That's one very simple example. The integrated circuits that were being built to military specifications those days cost literally 10 times as much as a comparable circuit in the commercial field. So it was a huge savings making that one simple change in the directive. Now, having said that, I would say it has now been used not just for products, but for services as well. And including services provided to our forces at war, uh, including guard services and MP services. And, and, and uh, I have very mixed feelings about that. I think, for example, part of the uh, tragedy of Abu Ghraib was because of the contractors that were involved without sufficient oversight and supervision. It was more complicated than that, but that was just one of the problems. So all in all, I'm very hesitant about using, uh, using this for services as opposed to products, and particularly services during wartime where the oversight is not as thorough as it might otherwise be. Thank you, it was good to talk to you today.